Welcome to You Hear It First, an unofficial, unfiltered history of MTV News. I'm Benjamin Way. For more than three decades, MTV News was where young people everywhere got their news first. And from 1996 to 2014, I had a front row seat. These are the stories behind the stories from the people who told the stories. This is You Hear It First. The gauntlet, dear listener, has been thrown down on the best MTV News origin story ever. In 1998, Sherry Skorka was in the final days of her MTV News internship and her senior year at NYU when she nabbed a pair of tickets to the Tibetan Freedom Concert in Washington, D.C. A freak lightning strike critically injured fans, stopped performances cold, and pressed Sherry into action. Sherry continued writing and producing eventually as supervising producer and West Coast bureau lead until 2006. This week, Sherry remembers going on tour with 50 Cent, speeding through Yonkers with Jadakiss and catching an impromptu unplugged performance from Tom York and David Crosby. She talks about covering the Michael Jackson trial with John Norris and floor producing the VMAs with Kurt Loder, plus backstage moments with Madonna, Bono, Dave Grohl, and many, many more. And be forewarned, in the latter half of our conversation, Sherry put me under my desk with side-splitting laughter, thanks to some very salty, very MTV language. In the end though, ours was a deeply moving conversation about friends, family, and a shared love of music. I grew up in South Florida, outside of Fort Lauderdale. My parents are both New Yorkers. That's important because how essential music was to like my father's life. He was in New York in the late 60s and early 70s. I grew up in the most diverse place. Not one neighbor was the same ethnicity or religion or race as the next. And it was this beautiful world of different sounds and different music. One neighbor played salsa, the other played reggae, and the other played hard rock or whatever And in my house. My father was a music junkie. He's the one who taped the MTV launch. Like we used to have a VHS tape. He's that guy. We recorded Thriller, the making of that epic long thing. We had that on a VHS tape to watch over and over. He took me to concerts. He took me to see Cyndi Lauper. He made us go with him to see the Moody Blues. He was both a Beatles fan and a Rolling Stone fan. He embraced disco at the same time as he loved like Black Sabbath. We had so much music in our house. My parents, they were going to see Donna Summer in concert. I was like three or four years old. And I was like inconsolable because they weren't taking me. (laughs) I should have known then that I'd be so obsessed with music and pop culture. I was always being told stories of like seeing Jimi Hendrix at New Year's at the Fillmore East or driving to Woodstock and having to park your car in the freeway or seeing Crosby, Stills and Nash and leaving because they were all tripping on acid and the songs went on too long and they just wanted to get breakfast at three in the morning. You know, like fun stories that I feel like I, um, maybe I needed my own stories and that's what led me to the world of pop culture. And I realized I love a subculture. I love a genre. I love diving in deep and like jumping from one to another. After I got through my like boy band phase, for me, like 12 years old, once that was done, I mean, I listened to Madonna and Cyndi Lauper and Duran Duran. It was because my parents were young. They were like in their 30s, you know, so they were still listening to modern music. You know, as a teenager, I jumped from R&B and hip hop and then I went to like punk rock 
and I would go deep. I was like, oh, I like this Green Day song. Let me find Lookout Records. And then, you know, go into Operation Ivy or Grunge came out. And I was like, oh, this Nirvana song's cool. Let me find out more about Seattle and Sub Pop and all this other stuff. My true love was always hip hop, you know, more than anything else. Do you remember any of the early shows you went to? I mean, I saw everyone in concert. I mean, I saw the Beastie Boys and Cypress Hill. And I remember when Porno for Pyros came out. I was a big Jane's Addiction fan. I saw like Motley Crue and I saw De La Soul and Farside. I remember seeing Black Eyed Peas before Fergie joined. All the stuff in New York because they had shows at Wetlands and Tramps and these smaller venues. And then like De La Soul played NYU for like $5. I really saw every underground hip hop act once we got to NYU. And then some punk rock. Like I like No Effects and I like The Descendants. Did you have a sense at NYU of what you wanted to do or did you crack that code while you were there? So the day I entered NYU, I was pre-med. I went from being pre-med to then doing a pivot. I realized I was going to major in psychology somehow once I got there. I was missing that creative writing I used to do a lot in high school. I ended up double majoring in journalism psychology. That journalism degree is what ended getting me to MTV News. And then I ended up getting that faithful internship at an MTV News. Ah, uh, it was an internship. So how did you find your way to the internship? A friend of mine named William Van Meter, he's the funniest guy ever, knew I was looking for internships. And then he's like, what about MTV News? You're so into going to shows. I think you would like it there. He introduced me to Edward Page. Ah, uh, Ed um, Page. He hired interns at the time because he was Jane Sangster's assistant. Edward Page, who's still one of my dearest friends, yeah. like somebody I talk to almost every single day still. I met him and like, had the internship the next day. Oh, it's so cool. That's so great. What did the world look like through an intern's eyes? And then, yeah, like flip that into a full-time gig. It was so chaotic. That was when 10 to the hour, we did a lot of it. It was the beginning of 1998 where like they still programmed a whole lot of that 10 to the hour stuff. So I was able to really get in the trenches right away. We lived in this like little room where like the copy machine was and the fax machine. The fax machine went off all day long with press releases. Oh my God, there were so many faxes. It was funny because I would have to go get tapes and, you know, it was a lot of logging tapes. It wasn't like getting coffee or any of that stuff. It was literally just production work. It was constantly transcribing. Can you transcribe the first 15 minutes of this? Can you find me like three shots of girls wearing tank tops in this video or something? You know, it's like whatever it was, it was like, I need to find Tupac in the digital underground video. Can you go get that? All these little intricate things for production because you had to have everything ready for this online edit. And so I learned how to tell stories through pulling all the pieces together. It was almost like if you were learning to cook by just shopping for the ingredients first. Yeah. Not getting in the kitchen yet, but just shopping (laughs) for the ingredients. And knowing that you're going to go to a kitchen soon, but this is all you had. It was amazing because you really got this front row seat to what was going on because, you know, you were allowed to go down to the studio. One of the first times I ever went to the studio, Robin Turner brought me down to the studio because she was producing an interview with the Foo Fighters who were newer at the time. And I was like, wait, Dave Grohl, the drummer from Nirvana? I walked down there and he's like, hey, you, who are you? And like wanted to ask me questions. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm just a lowly intern. So you had this like front row seat to get to be part of this like machine. What did it feel like to step through from being on one side of the stage to the other? You just realize that the bigger the star, the, they're so rarely treated like human beings. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like normal people. So they love having regular conversations. And I yeah. think that 
Dave, like, he's just waiting for the cameras to get ready. He just, he's like, who are you? What are you into? Like, young person. A lot of the time, it just became about doing the job. Yeah. It was yeah. a little bit hard not to fangirl out on a few people. I remember they assigned me to interview Jordan Knight of New Kids on the Block, which, listen, by that point, I didn't care about boy bands anymore. But when I was 12, it was either him or Joey McIntyre. I think I wrote my first name with their last name. You know, maybe I would marry them one day. Yeah. I had such a funny conversation with Jordan in the studio. It was one of those interviews where you were the producer. It was a studio interview, professional cameras through a control room, but you were off camera. Yeah. It was funny. I was talking to him and I said, there was a time where I like don't think I would have been able to breathe in the same room as you. Like I would have been like hyperventilating. And he's like, and look at you now. You're, you're yeah. you know, interviewing me for TV. And I was like, oh, wait, I am interviewing you for TV. I'm doing something too. Yeah. Yeah. The power <laughs> dynamic shifted. Yeah, totally. So how'd you rock that pivot to full time? So the Tibetan Freedom concert, it was not the first one, but it was the one that was in Washington, D.C. The entire MTV News staff pretty much was going because they were going to be live from the Tibetan Freedom concert all weekend. It was a lot of production. Everyone was going. And another intern and I, a woman named Renee Frisch, we got free tickets because Dave Anderson, he did a lot of social political stuff and he got tickets. And he said, hey, guys, you want to go have fun? And it was just two tickets. So we got on a bus from New York because we had no money. We were interns. And we stayed in the hotel with the MTV News crew because Michael Slotik, he was the assistant to Kurt and John, and I think Serena. He said, you can stay in my room. I'm probably not going to be in there much because he knew he'd be working so much. He was like, you guys can totally crash here. So we're like, cool. We go to the show day one. It might have been during Dave Matthews Band. I was just like hanging out watching. And all of a sudden, like a storm rolls in really fast. And a girl gets struck by lightning. Right, totally remember, yeah. Lisa Selfin. I only remember this because it created literally the domino effect in my life, I think. That moment, that lightning strike. Because it cleared the stadium, the rest of the show was canceled. We're back at the hotel. And Renee and I are hanging out with Michael, who is having drinks with Kurt Loder. And then we get there, and it's the heads of the department. It's Dave Sirolnik, Jane Sangster, Mark Doctorow all sitting around trying to figure out how they're going to do day two. Because now all of the evening acts, which are the biggest acts, Tribe Called Quest and Beastie Boys and Regents of the Machine, all these people had to be there the next day. Half of the artists are now into day two. And they're like, how are we going to cover this? They look up and they see Renee and I. And they're like, hey, you guys want to work tomorrow? It was the end of April. And my I was graduating college May 16th or something like that. So yeah. it was like a couple weeks. And I'm like, of course. And so the next day we had backstage passes on and I'm helping take Tribe Called Quest in the interview tent. I had to like take notes as the Beastie Boys were doing an interview to Come like on. put in the show to bring to our editors. I think Lee Daltz and Ken Roser like taught me how to be a producer, really. We had to bring them these notes of like the sound bites and it's all handwritten notes like about in time code, like time of day. And then I found myself on a break sitting next to Perry oh, Farrell. Man. Yeah. watching Sean Lennon perform. It was one of those moments where I was like, what is happening in my life right now? And we're talking about how much he looks like his dad. I'm talking about this with Perry Farrell. Like, what is happening? And then the next morning, there was going to be a, a march on Washington. So at the end of that night, producer who was going to produce the march on Washington, Betsy Forehand, Betsy. asked me if I could stay for another day with her and, she, and I would get to take the train back. I was like, oh, yeah, I'll take the train instead of the bus. 
again, I was, I was like those pinch me moments where I ended up in the middle with Serena Alchol. I ended up in the middle of a jam session with David Crosby and Tom York. They're like, they both have acoustic guitars. The girl's fine with the lightning strike. She didn't die. So it was like, all's okay. But literally a lightning strike is how I ended up getting Sherry, gig. That's bananas. Bananas. After that, the first piece I was asked to work on, Lily Newmeyer was moving over from doing MTV Latin America. And they wanted to pair her with somebody who both knew like how to find all the stuff at the library yeah. and all that. She's an excellent producer, a storyteller, but like also it was a piece that needed very colloquial writing, like a 22-year-old would write. And I was 22. So <laughs> Lily became like my life mentor for a lot of things as well. Like still call her and Tell me about some of those early packages. What was your early routine? Were you working on 10 to the Hour? Were you working on Reek and Rock? It was both. I think you worked on 10 to the Hour and it was just turned into 1515 instead of Week and Rock. And it was a lot of pulling tapes from the library and, and assisting producers with packages. The first time I ever took tapes out of the library myself, I got a stack of some one inch because I didn't know the difference. And the other PA at the time was this guy, Jason Black, also one of my closest friends and best pe humans on earth. He said, it happens to everybody. It was learn on the job and it was learning how to be a storyteller and really sitting in the edit with Jim Frankel and Darren Byrne. And then I fancied myself more of a writer, probably I just became a producer and like sitting with somebody like Andrea Duncan and, yeah. and like wa and watching the way like the masters of like the 10 to the hour, which, you know, like Michael Shore and Rhonda Markowitz and Randy Gollin and that crew was able to just tell a story in this really succinct way was amazing. Do you remember any of the either hard lessons or early lessons, something that stuck with you? I think a lot of the lessons were more of like how to handle yourself because you were with up and comers all the way to mega stars and really just how to handle yourself around people in a professional manner and really learning how to be a young woman, especially covering a lot of hip hop. I credit Andrea Duncan Mao. She's also still one of my closest friends. We were on the road with, it was the Rough Riders Cash Money Tour. All of us, including the talent, were staying at like an embassy suites and the bar at embassy suites everywhere closes at like 10 p.m. Yeah, I think. Sure. So everyone's done having drinks and they invite me to go hang out with them. I sort of become friendly with Jadakiss and Styles and all the guys from the locks because I'd done a piece with them. And she is like, you are not going anywhere near the hotel rooms. And I was like, why? I just want to hang out. And she goes, it doesn't matter if nothing happens. You could have two drinks, go back to your hotel room. Somebody sees you leaving that hotel room, your image and your right. reputation changes forever. It was almost like your mom saying nothing good happens after midnight. I feel like taught me how to, oh yes, right. I am here as much as this is fun. Right. You can't have it both ways. You need to be professional. And yeah. also you need to show up the next day to do all the shoots. So you can't be, you can't be out drinking all night either. You know, I mean, you have to remember I was 22, 23 years old. Do you remember like an early story that you were a huge champion of that made it across the line? It was the locks leaving Bad Boy. There was this legendary first top of the morning meeting that I was either at 9 or 10 a.m. The entire team got together in the center of the newsroom and just pitched stories. And we figured out what, was going to go for that day, what was going to be a dot-com story, because I got there right when that was happening, and then which one was going to be for the 10 to the hour, and which is something that we're going to look at for, as a bigger story for maybe 1515 or just whatever. And I didn't pitch a lot of stories because I wasn't a writer. I was a production assistant at the time, trying to become an associate producer. You know, you always try to do those little steps yeah. up. And 
I somehow was the person, I don't know why I was the one that we, that brought that story to the forefront. I think it was probably Mark Doctorow at the time said, you want to go do it? Mark Doctorow, also yeah. close friend, amazing, amazing producer and amazing human. He felt like I could handle it and said, you want to go do that story? You can do it. And so I championed doing that because I thought it was cool. Like they were wearing these t-shirts saying about a bad boy and that they were free. So I went up to Yonkers and spent a day and evening with them in the studio and then drove around Yonkers and sort of Mount Vernon area and showed me where everybody lived and like hung out and we'd be like this is where and we were driving so fast that we had a camera person in the front seat and I think I was behind the camera person and then it was Sheik and Jada Kiss. we're driving like 100 miles an hour with the cameraman and through like New York and pointing to like that's where Mary J used to live and this is where DMX used to hang out and and I was like okay (laughs) like it was a story I championed and like I am glad I was able to pitch and was able to do. I also pitched doing a story on Black Star, which was yeah. Mostaf and Talib Kweli. Edward Page actually shot that on DV camera in the studio. We used like the kitchen set sort of thing inside of the studio and shot. And, and I got to interview those guys. So like early raucous records stuff. I did have the best job as a PA. I was the person who did new releases. Oh, right. The person who does new releases, you have to reach out to all of the record labels and they would send you their new releases and you got to keep the CDs. I would get the CD cover and have to shoot it under a camera inside of the edit room. You have to put it underneath this light, the animatics thing. And like Lee or Ken would have to capture it and I would get to help pick them. And like, so I became friendly with some of the, especially the smaller labels were just excited to get the shine. And that was the other one I think I championed early on. What's the story that really was bigger than you could have ever imagined? I was a really big part of when 50 Cent came out in G-Unit. I feel like that was my story with Sway and the team. I went on the road with 50 like multiple times. I'd been with him so many times that he ran off stage one day full of adrenaline and like lifted me up. You know, it was like, yeah, like he was like so happy about the performance. It was so gross. He was so sweaty. We just were so familiar with one another. And it was just covering that groundswell of the mixtapes that covered all of that. Even to Puerto Rico, we were in, to the Mix Show Power Summit with Sway and a whole crew. Was there a childhood hero that you interviewed or met that really felt like, oh, this is that person? Madonna in the back of the Grammy one-on-one room where all the people would come through for an interview. That was pretty amazing. And then getting to spend time with Bono. I'm not this huge U2 fan, but he, to me, was such an incredible human. When he did the big red campaign, it was him, Brad Pitt, and Jaiman Hansu. I was like, oh, everybody's beautiful. Two weeks later, seeing him at the Grammys and him coming up and giving me a kiss on the cheek, because again, it was that proximity of time where he's like, I know you. Yeah. And it was funny because we somehow snuck my brother in as a, like a PA. And he saw that and he's like, did Bono just give you a kiss on the cheek? And I was right. like, uh-huh. Give us some VMA color. What was your gig typically? One year I had to do the overnight package with Andrea because it usually was two people. It was like a writer, a writer, producer. And I had to do the overnight piece. I ended up having to cover the post-show interviews one year where you got everybody after they came off stage. And then another year I did the red carpet show where you would be with Kurt Sujin or Sway or John Norris. And we did these cool packages when 1515 was still around where people's first VMA trips and we went shopping with them. One year I went shopping with Pink. It was Sujin Pak was a talent and we went all over Soho 
in like an SUV to all these different little shops. Like I remember going to Fat Farm with Ja Rule and, and then we went to like Jeffrey's, found safe place in the meatpacking district. It was like an interview while shopping and it was a really fun piece. And like talk about being normal people, like they weren't the mega stars that they became. The craziest VMAs was the one where Hurricane Katrina passed through Miami right. and we were all in Miami and stuck in the hotel when we should have been rehearsing because the winds were whipping against the windows. We all thought the windows were going to come into the hotel. But then the next day it cleared up. We were able to produce this red carpet show and I was with Kurt on the on home base. And it was so last minute that we were all literally helping move plants in yeah. place because yeah. nothing was set up and we had to be live. To me, it's a remarkable story of our collective capabilities, but it was also such a referendum on what people do when the chips are down. Like we all went to the bar, you know what I mean? Like I don't remember ever being in a bar that was popping quite like that. And to your point, in part, because you weren't entirely sure that the windows weren't going to pop. People forget that MTV News actually did hard news. We did tons of hard news. We did the Columbine shootings and when Matthew Shepard was killed. And I wasn't there during the Biggie Tupac, but I was there for Aaliyah and Lisa Left Eye Lopez and, and others that died way before their time. But 9-11 was a really strange moment because I used to go to the gym at the Crown Plaza Hotel, which was like a block away from MTV. Sometimes I would go in the morning really early before work. And that's when the planes hit, when I was working out and they had the TVs all over New York Sports Club. I thought, oh my gosh, I need to get to the newsroom because I know we're going to report on this. Not realizing that I would walk the block down towards MTV to see Elon Johnson, who was there early because she was a writer. She was probably getting a story together. She must have gotten to work early saying, we are being evacuated. Dave said everyone has to leave, escaping Times Square because they thought that the, something was going to hit Times Square next. Because yeah. we were in like the epicenter of... Everything, even if it would have hit the Empire State Building, was very close, right? So I ran uptown with Elon through Central Park. We ran into other MTVers randomly, and then we didn't know where we were going. We didn't know, and then we realized Sujin Pak lives up on the Upper West Side, and we ended up in this space. Sujin, mm. Elon, and I were forever bonded by this moment. The cell service was terrible. You couldn't find people. It was like you were glued to the news. And also, like, there was this desire to, like, go out and figure out what was going on because we were news people. Yeah. And then yeah. having to then cover it for weeks on end after that, putting those muscles on. We weren't influencers asking celebrities questions. We put our big girl panties on and, like, got out there and went to, like, talk to people about finding their family members. It was definitely a moment that I never take for granted. And I'm, I'm glad I was with a news organization that was under Dave and Jane and Mark and everybody to be able to come together and be able to cover this in a really meaningful way that was different than everything else out there. Hey, it's Benjamin. What with hybrid work, heightened performance expectations, global unrest, and economic flux, there's a lot to manage. Most of us need all the help we can get. My company, Essential Industries, is a boutique coaching and consulting firm specializing in individual and organizational transformation, content strategy, and collaboration. If you, your team, or organization needs help creating or communicating effectively, facing uncertainty with confidence, or leading meaningful transformation, visit benjaminwagner.com or email me at benjaminbwagner at gmail.com right now. I'd love to help. Now back to the show. Talk to me about floor producing Kurt Loader. Floor producing Kurt Loader was intimidating in the beginning because 
you know, he's this legendary human and he's so knowledgeable, but he still listens to you. And you had to remember, you're his producer. He's not an encyclopedia of every Britney Spears fact. He's an encyclopedia of everything that he was like deeply interested in, but you still had to tell him information. And a lot of floor producing is just telling the person where to go next. John is going to toss to you and you're going to toss to Serena, who's at the dock. It wasn't as bad once you got over the fact that it was Kurt Loder, but you never do that your first year. You you graduated to Kurt. If I floor produced one person the most, it was probably John Norris. He was legendary for his cool in a live scenario, right? The craziest thing I ever did with John Norris live was when we covered Michael Jackson's trial in like right. Santa Maria, California. Now, I had worked on the East Coast for the first six years. And then I moved to the West Coast and it ended up being me with a whole crew of amazing folks, Corey Moss and Kelly Marino and Yasmin Richard and Mark Bella and all these amazing people I love. We went to Santa Maria and we just had to kind of wait it out because we didn't know how long the jury was going to take. I think we made John the guest of the week and we put his photo up. Jonathan Musman, his production (laughs) manager, and I were talking about this and he was mortified and annoyed. We were there for so long that we were just like, had to make ourselves, entertain ourselves. Finally, it was happening. The verdict is coming down and it's live. And we didn't get like a full truck because, again, I think it was like hard to get to. We didn't know when it was going to happen. So we're in this really small truck where it's just me and like a technical director type person just running the live part of it. I had a headset on to talk to John and then a landline type phone to talk to Dave Sirolnik (laughs) in New York, who like it's like the voice of God coming down and telling you. Jerry, just you need John to continue just talking until we get to a commercial break. And da, da, you know, and it was just, please re-explain the, the jury makeup. And it got to the point where it was taking a lot longer. We went live and then it was taking forever. And John just had to vamp and keep saying different facts about the case. And I don't know what encyclopedia is inside of this man's head. Like <laughs> it's like it's like he has like a hard drive, like that you just plug in a new one into the back of his head where he just all of a sudden had all the information. Once we got to commercial break, he was like, kind of like cursing out, like, what the fuck? Like, why do I have to do this? How many more times are we going to say the same thing? I'm like, I don't know, John, there's nothing else to talk about. Like, we can't go off. We have to stay on. But while he's live, it was always like, okay, I'm going to tell you again, the jury was seven women and three men or, you know, whatever the makeup was. And it was, absolutely positively nuts but it was um an amazing experience and like a bonding experience it was like you're in dorm rooms yeah, with one another that's great like he didn't like to carry a computer at the time i mean this is before the time of everybody having a computer in their back pocket and he would just come to my room and use my like computer to email right. people was, <laughs> <laughs> so I'd, I'd be like trying to go to sleep and john be like in my room emailing people so it was literally like it. a dorm experience Cyrulnik, you've pivoted to him beautifully. Is there a kernel of wisdom or is there a special moment that you two share other than the voice of God, which you just nailed, makes you giggle or moves you in some way? I remember the first times being invited to those, there used to be a weekly meeting on Fridays, which was significant to an intern in PA when you had no money because there would always be bagels. It was very good. But Dave would just run this meeting like, the chief of staff, like he was just in charge and he commanded the respect of the room. People didn't talk over him. And it wasn't like in a mean, like my way or the highway type of thing. It was just like he commanded the room. It was amazing to get to spend some real time with him because he, you know, he created this thing. And then sometimes he would get to go to the things because when you get high up, you don't get to do a lot of the cool stuff. I remember going with him, Darren Byrne was producing and I was his PA for a free Mumia concert. 
in Philadelphia. And at that point, we actually were recording the concert. So there's not much even for us to do because the cameras just need to shoot the show. And I got to hang out and watch the Beastie Boys and Rage Against the Machine and all this stuff with Dave. And for some reason, I don't know what it was about Dave, but every time I spoke to him, I couldn't stop cursing. I'd be like, this is fucking wrong. And I literally couldn't stop saying the word fuck. And I was like, oh my gosh, like why? When I talk to other, I mean, I curse a lot, kind of, but not as excessively for some, I don't know, maybe I was nervous. I would always drop 8,000 F-bombs. I mean, he didn't care, but it was just kind of like, why can't I be professional around this man? Like, I remember his office was right next door to Mark Doctorow's. And I was telling Mark something and I was talking about the movie Half Baked when Bob Saget literally says the words, I used to suck dick for Coke. I don't know how much you edit from this. And literally at that moment, Dave Cyrulnik was in the doorway. And I said, I, I don't know what he heard before that. Like if he heard, like all he heard was that line. I was like mortified and dying. I think I like crawled under Mark Doctor's desk after that. <laughs> I feel like that just like set the tone for the rest. He's like, okay, this person's out of her mind and we're just going to go with it. I just fell under my desk (laughs) laughing. That's incredible. I love that. Um, But it was great because I got to like share moments with him later. Like we were stuck in an airport once coming back from the spring break or something. And, you know, you got to spend time with him as like a human being. And he really loved music. And I remember getting like through a friend in LA who was down with a lot of people. He gave me a burn CD of all this Deftones doing a bunch of covers. It wasn't out yet. It probably is on the internet now. But like they did like a Duran Duran cover and a few other things. And I yeah. was so excited to burn it to give it to Dave. So I was coming back to New York and I was like knocking on his door, all nervous still somehow, even though I was like seven years in, I still was a little nervous to knock on his door, but it was exciting to share music with, like your boss cares about music as much as you do. Big time. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I remember hanging out with him in 2013 underneath Barclays, like three in the morning, just him and me, everyone else is gone. Talking music, talking music, you know, it's my, one of my, my favorite memories. What life lessons did MTV News provide you? I mean, other than gaining just like production skills like no other, I mean, everyone who graduated from MTV, our era, whether it was in news or production, I think the people who did TRL and DFX and those shows also had a similar kind of production acumen that like they're the titans of the industry currently. It definitely taught me how to think on my feet and really be somebody who was confident in your decisions because you couldn't not be. You had to make split second decisions. And it was amazing to be empowered to do that. There's something about finding your tribe. And I Mm -hmm. always tell young people this, find your tribe, find your people. I mean, the people that I met at MTV and MTV News specifically are my best friends to this day. Like I talked to Erica Clark and Erica Forstadt and Jason Black and Elon Johnson and Maureen E.K. And I could text Sway out of the blue. I mean, he's one of the busiest dudes I've ever met. And he will still get back to me. Ramon Dukes and Shaheem Reed and all the people. And Darren Byrne and I wouldn't have been exposed to all the music I was exposed to and some of the art and culture and and movies and everything just from sitting down and having conversations. I spent a lot of time with Chris Connolly and hearing the wisdom of others and listening to people who are both older and younger than you. Because when I, I was given a lot of respect as somebody 22, 23 years old. And I was in a room with people who I didn't realize how much older they were, but they were quite a bit older than me at the time. And yeah. everybody's got a voice and everybody has something valid to bring to the table. I think that that was something that happened so naturally. It's a life lesson I didn't realize I learned until later when I go to new situations and try to foster that same environment. But nothing will ever capture that feeling I went to 
every concert. I went to every party. I went to everything. It sometimes it cycles back to to my dad and being able to tell him the things because he was such a big music fan. He loved being in the know about things because of me. And it was really fun to be able to like connect on that level with my family. So it's just reminiscing. It almost brings tears in my eyes every time I talk about MTV News. You Hear It First, an unofficial and unfiltered history of MTV News is an essential industries podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you get your podcasts and visit benjaminwagner.com for more episodes and information on our creative coaching and consulting services. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends.